Hello and welcome to episode 275 of I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. And join me as always is the glorious League Freak. You can also find me on Twitter at League Freak. How are you going there, mate? I'm going very well. I'm looking forward to tonight's episode. We're doing another history episode. And before we jump into it, we need to give you all an opportunity to go to manscaped.com. And if you use our exclusive promo code, which is NRL, you get 20% off and free shipping on every single item that's on their site. Uh, We recommend getting the Perfect Package 3.0. It's a luxury grooming kit featuring the Lawnmower Trimmer 3.0. And you basically get everything you will need in that. Uh, Once again, use the code NRL at checkout. And make sure you do your part to support the people that support us. Absolutely. So um, let's get into it. Now, this is a history one, but we're not going back a long way. No, no. So we're going all the way back to the, to essentially to the 80s to start with. Um, so we're going to look at the history, or not so much the history, the birth of the salary cap in the uh, New South Wales Rugby League slash NRL. Yeah. Now, it seems like... The Surrey Cup has pretty much been around in rugby league's history since day one. It's only been really, uh, well, it got implemented in for the 1990 season. The concept, though, just like State of Origin's concept, both came from VFL mm-hmm. or the AFL. Uh, the VFL had a, you know, let's call it a soft salary cap in place from 1985, which was set at different levels for different clubs based on. Um, essentially the number of stars I had there. So if a team had a lot of top-line players, they had a high salary cap, and it wasn't to allow them to keep them. It was to give them a little bit of time to adjust their roster so that they could all work towards having a hard cap where everyone's on exactly the same amount. So it was going to be if you gave everyone a hard cap and some teams had, you know, 17 top-line players... It's going to be harder for them to, you know, slash slash the whole lot, I guess, and come down to the same level as everybody else. So mm-hmm. it was sort of stepped in a way so that they would be able to ease their way towards the, the, the end goal. Um, now, they they had that there uh, in place for for five years. So it was from 1985 to, to 1989, was it the five years that they had it in place, the soft cap. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were working towards a hard cap in 1989. Um, so in the 1988 season, which started with obviously a lot of expansion in the competition, we had three new clubs in the Gold Coast who were home to the region with the oldest country rugby league team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newcastle had a team from the region that had a team in the first two seasons of the game in 1908-09. And Brisbane, who started their own comp in 1909, so they were all safe decisions, but they were yeah. all good expansion areas. Yeah. Um, just a few days after the Broncos' first ever premiership game, which saw them absolutely annihilate the defending premiers, Manly, 44-10, to 10, there were concerns raised almost immediately that the, the game had given the Broncos too much of a fair go, quotation marks. <laughs> um, you don't like it be, to be too fair. Like, it's nah, supposed to be fair. Right but not too fair. That's right. And this is, remember, this is after one game. Yeah. So at the end of the year, in an interview with Roy Masters, Canterbury Chief Peter Moore believed that a salary cap was inevitable, stating, 
It won't stop the big payments to the superstars. If a club's cap is $1.1 million, they can still give Michael O'Connor a million dollars, but a lot of players would disappear from the club's books. <laughs> He's making it pretty clear straight from the outset that the clubs are going to do whatever they can to rot the system. Yeah. Um, Ken Arthurson, who's the boss of the Australian Rugby League at the time, added that the VFL have just finished a five-year process where each club is moving to the same salary cap ceiling. I genuinely believe we will have to adopt it. Now, John Fleming, who was the secretary of the Dragons, he's also a member of the game's policy committee, added one small concern. He said, we invited Alan Schwab, who was the VFL executive director, to talk about the salary cap. I checked its operation with the president of the North Melbourne Club. He said the salary cap, salary cap works very well for the clubs who adhere to it every year. But he said five clubs don't follow it, and they're the ones who play in the finals. Yes, and it's it's funny because, you know, you, we'd seen periods of the game that had been dominated by one club or another, and now we're getting to an era of really true expansion for rugby league, or the New South Wales Rugby League turning into the Australian Rugby League. And I think what you, you started to see was the Sydney clubs started to recognise that, hey, there are clubs outside of Sydney that are going to be able to generate a lot of money. They've got very big junior bases and they could be way bigger than we are potentially. And so if they start bringing in different tiered salary caps, we might not be able to compete with them. And so there's a lot of angst going around. And like you think about it being just from the big Sydney clubs, which were really still the richest clubs in Australia. What about the smaller clubs, Mm. which there were many of those back then? So it's a really interesting time. And it feels like almost everyone wasn't happy with the idea of a salary cap. No, they weren't because obviously it was, um, I suppose in their eyes, it meant that the strong clubs were going to be able to stay stronger Mm -hmm. and the weaker ones would just continue where they were. Yeah. That's this mindset they had because because of the soft cap where it was at different levels. I think a lot of them thought that that's kind of where it was always going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this talks will look at how John Quayle had to explain how it was going to function from a very basic level mm-hmm. and then constantly tweak it the whole way through every time a concern came up about how they were going to try and rot the system. Which when you think about it, is an absolute nightmare and probably the worst way you could implement a salary cap. Yeah, he's pretty much doing it on the run. Mm. And he only had, you know, he gave himself two years to get it right before it got implemented in full. Yeah. Uh, So it was made official that the uh, at the end, in September of 1988, that a salary cap was going to be introduced in the New South Wales Rugby League for the 1990 season. Ken Arthurson explained in an interview how it would work. So this is his quote. We tried a ceiling payment scheme before, which this was, um, just to clarify, this is when they had a transfer fees thing for international players. Mm-hmm. And it just, it got rotted and destroyed and they just, they just canned it. It was a complete failure. Um, so he said, it fell through because some clubs would sign a player, then pay him an extra $100,000 to be the league club doorman or some such rort. Um, the salary cap is not designed to limit payments to any one player, but to limit the overall expenditure of a club. 
So if the salary cap is 1.5 million, for instance, they can give as much as they like to one player, but that payment reduces their expenditure in other areas. When it is introduced in 1990, we'll have a panel constantly looking at all areas of a club's income and expenditure, sponsors, league club, employment incentives, and so on. It would be difficult to tell a league's club that they can't employ a particular player, but we will want to know how much extra he is earning as, say, the doorman. Clubs found guilty of breaching the rules will be fined 75% of the amount they exceeded the cap by. Now, something that needs to be said there is he's basically talking about what we would call third-party payments here. Mm -hmm. But it is, you know, as he said, and this was really common back then, where there's even stories about there was a certain poker machine that would be anything that that poker machine would earn would go to a, a star player. Like there was all sorts of rorts that would go on. And instead of it being a sponsor that would pay that extra money, it would be the league's clubs mm. through some manner, whether it was, you know, there's there's a lot of stories out of England where to get around the salary cap, Super League clubs would sign a player and then their wife would work at the club and she'd be working behind the bar for an absolutely outrageous amount of money. Exactly right. Things like that. That was really common throughout the entire game back then. Yep, or giving them cars. Mm-hmm. That was another classic one. Um, so, yeah, it was... And because there was no real cap in place, um, you couldn't really police it either. No. So it was just a free-for-all. Um, Arthurson also revealed that the New South Wales Rugby League would be using a soft cap, just as the VFL had but it would be in place for only three years, running from 1990 until 1992. There was even a plan at the time to have a player draft, which the VFL also had in conjunction with the salary cap. So roughly speaking, the way it was going to work was uh, you have the salary cap in place. They understood and recognised that there were going to be a lot of players that were not going to be able to be retained. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a lot that weren't going to have a contract. So they would all go into a draft at the end of the season, which was still is November. Yep. And then you'd have a series of drafts. And it was going to be one every month until the next season started. And clubs could sign whoever they wanted to out of that draft. That's kind of how it was going to work. And mm-hmm. so eventually that's the way you use um, the salary cap and the draft to try and level the playing field, I guess. That's their mindset anyway. It's a It's a simple sort of system. It uh, it didn't work out so well. We'll get no. to that. <laughs> <laughs> so this news meant that uh, clubs have one season to get their houses in order before the cap came in. And what it meant was instead of trying to figure out how they're going to fit players in, clubs went on spending sprees for the 1989 season in a bid to try and beat the system. Yeah. So basically what they're trying to do was insanely front-load contracts. So say, for example, um, you know, you're the Bulldogs, you've got Terry Lamb, and you want to keep him on the books for three or four years. You go, right, Terry, we want to give you, say, $150,000 a year for the next three years when the cap comes in. But we might be a bit tight there. So what we're going to do in 1989 is just give you $400,000 for that year, and that will cover the amount that we should be paying you for the the other three after that. Yeah, and get ahead of the cap. Exactly. Yeah, smart idea. You yeah. can't blame them. Exactly. Um, so in November of 1988, John Quayle, 
held a conference with officials from all 16 clubs where he explained that a salary cap will take place from 1990. However, the league reserves the right to impose a cap in 1989 on any club who, on audited figures, goes into deficit in 1988. A decision aimed at stopping clubs from trying to buy talent from other clubs or potentially paying stars huge salaries to compensate for a smaller wage when the cap is introduced. <laughs> so he's shutting down that whole front-loading of contracts from the get-go. Well, he's trying to anyway. Yeah. Now, the other thing that was going on by the end of the 88 season, there was a number of players who were being negotiated with and signed by rival clubs for future seasons, mm-hmm. despite being under contract at the time to their current club. And this is what, what we know today as tampering. Um, in 1988-89, this was just going absolutely ballistic. It was out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, rugby league historian and journalist Ian Head suggested that the game needed a form of collective bargaining agreement between the Players Association and the league. This is just yeah, an it, idea he had. Yeah, and it's it's kind of crazy that they didn't have it at that point. Like, you can understand going back a certain number of years that they wouldn't have something like that in place. But around 88, there was starting to get to be a lot of money in the game. A lot of big contracts, a lot of big sponsorship deals. Um, we did have a players association, and that they didn't have a collective a collective bargaining agreement is a little bit crazy. Mm. Um, so just before Christmas of nineteen eighty eight, Western Suburbs signed the world's greatest player at the time, Ellery Hanley. Um, despite the club recording a six hundred thousand dollar deficit for the year. How the hell do they sign the greatest player <laughs> in the world for six hundred when they're down six hundred grand? It's crazy. It's absolutely uh, crazy. So, and this is where we learn about another loophole that got shut down. Hanley's purchase was labelled as a in quotation marks Christmas present to the Magpies by millionaire Jim Masterton, who is the owner of Masterton Homes, also the sponsor of the Magpies at that time. There you go. John Quayle quickly pointed out that such a transaction would not escape the salary cap, stating rules of salary cap are that any individual, any association connected with a club is part of that salary cap, which means your sponsor cannot go and buy a player for you because they are essentially a part of your club while they are your sponsor. Yeah, and that's a, I mean, that is a rule that is very big in place today. Yeah, exactly. So we move into 1989, and on March 26, the league reveals that a special independent three-man committee will supervise the introduction of salary cap. The members are George Haynes, Stanley Costigan, and Dennis Cortesi. Now, one of those guys, I think it was Costigan, was also uh, also had a, a long career working in the Australian tax office. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> um. Is, yeah, so but he's was, up against a, a bunch of old footballers. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> what chance has he got? Yeah. <laughs> yeah has, he ever, has he ever ordered a chook raffle? Exactly. <laughs> um, on May 5, the league revealed that clubs will receive a 100% penalty fine for exceeding the cap. So whatever amount they exceed the cap by, that will be the size of the fine that they will pay. It, also decided, uh, it was also decided to introduce a soft cap ranging from as low as $800,000 for the poorer clubs up to $1.5 million for the wealthiest. They decided what the cap for each individual club would be based on each club's recent financial history, 
balance of funds, player wages for the last two years, and the agreed player payments for the 1989 season. So the salary caps in place for the 1990 season for each club were Balmain, $1.3 million, Brisbane, $1.5, the maximum, Canberra, $1.3, Canterbury, $1.3, Cronulla, $1 million, the Roosters, $1.5 million, which that still confused me because they did not have a star-studded squad, so I don't know how they got it that high. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Gold Coast, $1.3 million, Illawarra, 800000 Manly, $1.5 million. Newcastle, $1.3. North, $1.3. Parramatta, $1.5. Penrith, $1.5. St. George, $1.3. South and West, both 800000 So it's... um, You can see some clubs are $700,000, almost double um, their cap less than the top tier. Yeah, and, like, if you look at the way that they're trying to implement this, you can understand why they made those decisions. But rugby league being rugby league, uh, you can see why clubs who couldn't have afforded to spend as much as the top clubs were really upset that they couldn't spend as much if they wanted to, which kind of makes no sense because if they had spent, if a team like Western Suburbs had have spent the same amount as the Broncos, they would go broke. They would go broke really quickly. Yeah. But they still wanted the ability to if they if they chose to. Exactly right. So they they look at this list when it come out and they're like, oh, how come they get more than me? Yeah. They were like, you're saying I can't cut my nose off to spite my face, <laughs> but what if I want to? You can't yeah. stop me from doing that. What if I want to cut off someone else's nose to spite my own face? <laughs> I want that right. I love rugby league. Oh, this is fantastic. You know, as much as this sounds boring, talking about facts and figures and salary and stuff like that, you really get to see how the the back end of, of the clubs started to function. And you see little things they were trying to do to try and circumvent the salary cap. Mm-hmm. And how every time they did something, you'd hear John Qualick and us come in and they just come in and a Bam! Down with a down with a friggin' band hammer. We're not mm-hmm. having that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so obviously, after that was released, very shortly after, clubs started to request to have a higher salary cap. Gold Coast was the first, um, and they got theirs increased, followed by West and then South. Now, the reason why South were a bit upset is at the end of 1989, their salary cap was. The minimum it was eight hundred thousand dollars. Yet they were the minor premiers. Mm-hmm. So they're like, how how can we get to be minor premiers and have the lowest salary cap? And they had to constantly be told it's it's not because of the quality of what you do on the field. It's to do with how you run your business off the field. That was the thing, and that's what they couldn't get their head around. You yeah, teams going, hang on, we finish higher than them on the ladder. How come we don't get as much salary cap as them? And blah blah blah. And that's the thing. They, you can see this little struggle they have mentally with how it all works. The mental gymnastics. Yeah. So, the salary cap start date uh, was listed as being November one, nineteen eighty nine. That's when all player contracts come to an end uh, in nineteen eighty eight, and we still live and die by that date. So that's when it first began, November 1, 89. Now, just prior to that, in August, it's revealed that Wally Lewis uh, was going to be maintaining his current contracted value of $120,000 a year. 
However, new recruit from Manly, Dale Shearer, was going to be paid $50,000 a year, despite his current deal at Manly seeing him being paid $115,000 a year. <laughs> <laughs> so this is another thing, and we we saw this with... Um, I think, was it Israel Folau when he tried to sign with Parramatta? Uh, well, we've seen, we saw it a lot with after Super League when they would apply notional values to players. Um, I can't remember that it happened to Israel Folau. It I might remember have. When, I think it was Parramatta said, said that they were going to pay him some small salary. And oh, the NRL said... Right. Yeah, the NRL said, no, no, how can we yeah. go from having a $1 million salary in, in Rugby Union to... 300,000, whatever it is, you want to offer him. Yeah. And so they readjusted it and yeah. Paramount said, oh, we can't afford him now. Yeah, exactly. And there was a, like in that case, I think that they probably were really going to pay Israel full out a lower amount of money. Yeah. But they, the NRL said, look, that we're not having that happen. And I, I was pretty upset about that at the time because um, I just thought it was the NRL stepping in and, and, unbalancing the salary cap. Like if a player does want to take less to go to another club, that's up to them. But it, with it, there was a history of it in the game in terms of when we come out of the Super League war and you had players that were moving clubs and some players, the NRL said, well, they've got a notional value that we're going to apply to them under the salary cap. And uh, so it, it wasn't, um, something that had happened out of the blue. There was a little bit of a history of it, but um, it, it's still a little bit weird. But when, like, going back to the time we're talking about, when you see Dale Shearer, who was taking, you know, less than half of what he was earning to go from one club to another, like, the alarm bells start ringing immediately. Yeah, and so he was seeing a club, so the Broncos have come out and gone, oh... We'll just give, we'll just put players down on fifty thousand dollars a year, sign as many of them as we want, and just we'll just find the extra money for them elsewhere. Yeah. So they offered him fifty thousand dollars a year. He agreed and signed the paperwork. Um, John Quayle then suggested that Shearer's value would be assessed, and he said, uh, off the top of his head, he'd be starting Shearer's price at a hundred thousand dollars. Um, he also revealed that the Salary Cup Committee will likely ask the Broncos why Shearer would accept an offer of $65,000 per year less than his current deal with Manly, which he is trying to abandon before his contract ends. As an example to clubs that they cannot go around undervaluing players in order to get around the salary cap either. That was the first case. Yeah, and I mean, obviously at this point, they don't have the sort of forensic auditing that the NRL does today. Um Oh, so this is generally an, an honour system at this stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, on October 13, all 16 clubs had to lodge their player transfer list for the 1990 season with the, end, with the league, with some clubs being forced to purge as many as 30 players in order to fit under their salary caps for the following year. This led to huge criticism of the cap concept because mm -hmm. now you're starting to impact on players directly and not, and not just the clubs. Yeah, yeah. So... The following month, a small group of first-grade players and coaches held an informal meeting in a Sydney hotel where they discussed their opposition to the proposed draft system, which was set to be introduced at the start of the 1991 season, and how they could go about opposing it with a view of blocking it. 
Uh, Quayle squashed the matter by writing to the Players Association, stating clearly that the draft system in any form will not be introduced and it was never the intention of the board for it to be introduced before there is a final consultation with the Players Association. It's uh, interesting that he said that. <laughs> hmm. That's, again, sort of things on the run. Yeah. Um, John Quayle also informed all 16 club bosses and the Players Association that he proposed for the completion of the draft concept to be uh, in place by March 31, 1990, with a view of implementing it in October 1990. Because um, he needed it sorted out by October, so that when all the contracts ended in November, the whole salary cap thing and, like, the salary cap's already in place, but the whole draft concept kicks in at the same time that the contracts for 1991 kick in. Yeah. It's all a bit of harmony there. That's what he's aiming at. Um, so in 1990, uh, the board decided to run their draft concept by their legal advisors before implementing it in full, amid talk of legal action from the Players Association that it was a restriction of trade. And we've mentioned that before in a few episodes, um, the Dennis Taddy one, uh, the most prominent one. Mm-hmm. That's uh, way back, what was that, episode three or four? Yeah. yeah. Podcast. It's a really good episode. People should go and listen to it. Absolutely. Um, on March 10, 1990, it is reported that the Raiders are already $50,000 over their cap, despite their cap being bumped up from $1.3 million to $1.5 million. West had their cap bumped up from 800000 to $1.1 million, and South saw their caps increase from 800000 to $1.2 million. The Knights later got their cap increased from $1.3 million to nearly $1.6 million. Wow. And that, that one's surprising because it was supposed to be capped at $1.5 million in 1990. Yeah, yeah. So already things would be a little bit fluid, so to speak. Yeah, and like it is – I don't like using the word chaos, but when you're working towards a singular goal and these things weren't clear ahead of time, this is chaos. Like, this is a really bad implementation of the salary cap and the player draft. Yeah. And the, the problem we've got is, like, this does sound like it's being rushed, but there's an awful lot of problem within the games, um, within the clubs, I should say, mm-hmm. with them. Um, it's, a, it's a phrase you've used before regarding the salary cap, where they're spending themselves to death. Yeah. You had a lot and- of clubs that were financially struggling bad or going backwards. And so this had to be brought in quickly, which is why it seems rushed, but it it really had to be done that fast to try and fix a lot of problems in the game. Yeah, and like also you go back to the early 80s when we'd had clubs basically folding because they were broke. Um, And this was seen as a way to stop that from happening longer term. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't want to... You know, the backlash, I guess, the league got over the fact that in 1983, they were close to getting rid of um, Cronulla, West, South were very close to getting a tap on the shoulder, as well as Newtown. Yeah. And eventually, Newtown were the ones to go, and it saved the other, the other clubs just. But that's how bad things were. Um, West and Cronulla still struggled through the 80s. Uh, Illawarra was struggling and I mean they'd barely been around all that long mm-hmm. Canberra were in huge debts and they only got bigger so you know we're talking about nearly half the clubs in the competition at this stage then they're all running in bad really bad situation 
So, yeah, this was urgent. Um, so, midway through the 1990 season, the Raiders players agreed to take pay cuts in order to allow the team to keep Ashley Gilbert, who was, uh, you know, one of those club stalwarts, so to speak. Um, he like ball the other players, so they wanted to keep him on the books. Uh, while Parramatta had to make the tough decision to axe five players, including prominent top graders Jeff Bugden and Paul Taylor, in order to fit under the cap. Uh, in May, it's reported that Newcastle are set to have their cap slashed by $400,000 for 1991 because they're struggling to keep their player payments down. Wow. So this is another thing that was in there. Um, the rule they had there was if you went over by the cap, then the amount you went over would come off your cap for the next year. Hmm. So if you have, you know, with Knights, if you were, your cap was 1.5, you had 1.9, then your next season your cap would be 1.5 minus the 400000 went over, so you'd be running on 1.1. So you'd have to cut $800,000 worth of salary out of your cap. Which is absolutely crazy. Savage. Really. Absolutely yeah. savage. Uh, in August of 1990, the Bulldogs Leagues Club posted a huge profit of almost $4.4 million, which allowed the Bulldogs to have their cap increased from $1.3 million to $1.5 million. And this is what clubs were doing. They realised that if they had healthy balance books, then the, the league would allow them to have their salary cap increase, which would then allow them to buy, buy more players or buy yeah. better players. Yeah. Which is exactly what the league wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, in September 1990, the Magpies asked for a further increase to the salary cap. They initially had an increase from 800000 to $1.1 million. They then got it taken up to $1.3 million by the league. Later that it, month, the draft... Oh, sorry? I was going to say, that's almost a miracle. When you remember where the Magpies were at at this time, financially, Yeah, it's like, I don't know how they were managing to get those increases. Yeah. It, it's hard to figure out how they managed to do it. Yeah. Because I think, I think at this stage they might have, West, West Ashfield might have been on board. I'm not too sure. Um, West Ashfield's always been a massive cash cow for the club, though. Yeah. Propped them up for a long time. Uh, so late in September, the draft was officially launched. The 16 clubs submitted their list of players that, uh, that they were placing on the draft. The initial number of players was 57. Far out. A second list would be submitted in a month's time, and it, at the at that stage, it was likely to increase the number to eighty players in the draft. <laughs> That's a fair whack. Yeah. Um, on November sixteen, West got their cap increased again to the maximum one point five million. So they've in the space of twelve months, they've had their cap almost doubled. Yeah. They then cleaned up in the first draft as they secured the services of top quality Bulldogs forwards David Gillespie, Joe Thomas, and Paul Langmack. And they easily had the best draft picks of any of the clubs here. Mm-hmm. And Paul Langmack at that time was, I mean, he was a young star forward. He was he was a like one of those players that people were thinking you might be able to build, you know, a really good team around this young bloke. Yeah, Gillespie too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Illawarra had their cap increased during the year from 800000 to just over $1 million. And in November, it was bumped up slightly more to $1.15 million. In total, the number of players that were put on the draft wasn't 57, as earlier suggested. It was 115. Wow. 
and only 23 were signed. Oh, that's outrageous. Because the salary cap restricted them. Yeah. So the players who found new clubs via the first round of the draft were Trevor Gilmeister went to the Broncos, Greg Gibson went to Canberra, Bruce Maguire and Scott Tronk went to the Bulldogs, Les Davidson, Richard McKell and Darren Higgins went to Cronulla, Pat O'Doherty, Robin Thorne, Ray Herring went to the Gold Coast, Alan McIndoe went to Illawarra, Guy Meredith went to Manly, Ian Heron and Sean Kelly were picked up by Newcastle, Peter Jackson and Phil Blake went to Norse, Paul Dunn went to Penrith, Wayne Collins and Jason Oucher went to St. George, and the West picked up Gillespie, Thomas, Langmack and Stephen Burns. Balmain, East, Parramatta and South did not participate in the first round of the draft. It's interesting hearing some of them names because some of those players were very much key players of those teams that picked them up and pl- key players for a long time with some of them players. Yeah. You think Gilmaster at Brisbane. Yeah, and uh, Les Davidson. Yep. Like, Paul Bruce Dunn McGuire. was a, a really, really big pickup for Penrith. Yeah, Bruce McGuire, I think, may have been a test player, if not at the Bulldogs, than that year when he was at Balmain. And any time you can get Chuck Aaron, I mean... I wonder what happened. I didn't even know he played for Newcastle. No, neither did I. Um, North picked up international Peter Jackson. Wow. That was another good one. Yeah. So, yeah, there was some some big names on the draft. Um, All players who applied to be included in the draft but were not picked up by a club became free agents and were free to negotiate with any clubs for the salary listed on their draft application form. So... You couldn't go onto the draft and give yourself too high a price because no one would sign you. Yeah. But you also had to make sure that you were being paid what you deserved mm-hmm. and not putting yourself out there too cheaply because the league would then say, huh, you, you're, underselling, you're undervaluing yourself and they'd readjust it for you. It's a very weird system. Mm. So the players are kind of... I suppose they're in a bit of no man's land as far as trying to figure out what the what their actual value is because yeah. up until this point they don't really get a chance to compare themselves uh, salary wise with other players because you know that that information's just not out there. Yeah, and the other thing is too, I think it's fair to say that at this point in the game's history, the vast majority of players aren't as sophisticated in terms of knowing what their value was and where their standing in the game was. And, you know, this was a completely new concept for these players, a completely new set of negotiating rules. I mean, a lot of these players come up through a system where, you know, you pretty much played for the club that was your local club. And now they've gone into a draft and they've got to nominate their value where in the past, a lot of them would have just been told their value by the club and said, look, we're willing to pay you this much, and if you can get more, go elsewhere. And now they've kind of got to put that value on themselves. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And they're, they're learning how to negotiate for themselves mm-hmm. for the first time. Because, you know, there were not many player agents around then either. No. Um. On January 15, 1991, there were 82 players left on the second draft list. But because most clubs were at their cap list, many of these players remained unsigned. Of all of the players that are on the list, though, Wally Lewis was the headline player on the on the draft list after he was discarded by the Broncos. That's unbelievable. Uh, 
And a lot of that came about because Wayne Bennett told him that he was not going to be captain of the Broncos in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, while he felt, I don't know, he, he was contemplating whether he wanted to keep playing or not. And when that when he said that, he started getting a lot of people, a lot of clubs giving him a uh, you know an offer to come and move to them. But he didn't want to leave Queensland. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting offers came from England, and he was offered $500,000 to play with an English club. Did I tell you this one before? Yeah, we talked about it a couple of nights ago. Yeah. I remember he was he was offered five hundred grand to go and play for Featherstone, I think it was. Yeah. And he thought, how, how, where did they have that money? <laughs> yeah, because we were laughing, saying they wouldn't have that money now. No. I'm, I'm not doubting that they had it then. English clubs were doing very well financially back then and back in the late 80s. Yeah, I think that it probably come about because in England, they, they, they've they had that long tradition of you buy a season tickets. Yeah. And that's the that's what the majority of their fans that would turn up on game day, they'd buy their season tickets ahead of time. And I think that that's where their money would come from back then. That's right. And if you could say that you had Wally Lewis come into your club next year, season tickets would go through the roof. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, in the end, it was Gold Coast who were pretty much the only club who could make him an offer. And they gave him a very, very sizable one. Um, and there was this rule in place. There's a 100-kilometer traveling clause, which Lewis invoked. This rule meant that players don't have to accept being drafted to a club that is more than 100 kilometers away from their current home ground. Wow. Uh, that's <laughs> that's funny because if you're up in Queensland, well, that means you basically can say no to anyone that's either the Broncos or or the Gold Coast. What were they? Were they still the Seagulls or were they the Giants at this point? They were the Giants in 88. Yeah. And I think they became the Seagulls in 89 when the Seagulls Leagues Club took them over. Yeah. And then... I mean Newcastle, they would have they would have been in a, a pretty good yep. situation as well. Canberra definitely would have definitely. been. Illawarra or close. Ill- Illawarra, yeah. You live a, a few, you know, not too far south of Illawarra. Well Illawarra it's the home ground. Yeah. You're gonna I mean, I guess there'd be teams in Sydney that would be outside that hundred kilometers for sure. Absolutely. So there were just a, a small handful of players that found new clubs in the second round of the draft. A lot of them were picked up by South. But um, Balmain picked up Craig Izzard. Canberra got Scott Gale and Glenn Ryan. The Bulldogs got Steve Maven, Darren Brown and Paul Doolan. East got Steve Benkick. Gold Coast got Wally Lewis, Danny Peacock and Heath Lewis, Wally's younger brother. Illawarra got Michael McRitchie. Newcastle got Jason Hugerworth, Bill Dart and Paul Hughes. North got David Percival, Jamie Waldash. Penrith got Graham Mackay and Max Mannix. Wow, Graham Mackay was a good pickup. Mm. St. George got Sean Townsend. South got Billy Noak, Shane Stead, Sandy Campbell, Glenn Rogers, Gary Marshall, and John Tyrrell. They also picked up uh, shortly after Greg Mannix, Arthur Siambus, Bill Denor, and Matthew Steele. Bunch of essentially depth players. Yeah, yeah. And West got Tony Rampling and Peter Trevitt. Brisbane, Cronulla, Manly did not participate in the draft. And neither did Parramatta for the second time. So Parramatta felt set. Yeah. The early 90s are going to be Parramatta's time. Yeah, they asked out. I mean, remember, they've still got the original Peter Sterling there. Yeah. 
<laughs> They're not looking for another one yet. No. Now, there's a few things that happen that are coming up here, which are going to sound like something that's been happening in the game at the moment right now. This is the first one. John Quayle announced, after seeing the amount of players on the draft list, that all 16 NRL clubs will have to provide a team in all three grades. First grade, reserve grade, and President's Cup, which I think was under 21 then. This would allow clubs the ability to sign more of the players on the draft list. Clubs, though, saw it as a further financial burden. Yeah, and this is something we've talked about. And this is the reason I believe that we saw the under-20s comp in the NRL removed, even though it was, it was so successful. Um, it was too much in terms of costs, and the clubs don't like costs, obviously. Um, but it was a good move to, to try and get clubs because it wasn't just about the players that would be drafted. It, at this time, the the New South Wales Rugby, or the ARL at this stage, they were seeing how certain clubs were working and how certain clubs were producing talent, and it was obviously a good thing to have all three grades. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, February 3, Penrith suggested that the 16 premiership sides should only have to worry about fielding their top side and not the two lower-grade sides as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm. They eventually got their way. That's incredible. Because Penrith, through, you know, and this is when Penrith really had started to become any sort of a force in rugby league. Before this, they're they're nowhere. To say they're an also-ran is to give them credit that they don't deserve. Now they're one of the better clubs in the competition, and they really are producing a lot of talent. So for them mm. to say that they shouldn't be having those extra grades is pretty incredible to think about because they make out with those extra grades better than any other team in the competition. That's right, yeah. I mean, they were booming, and the amount of young talent they had coming through in that 1985 to 1989 period all at the same time. Yeah, it, it might unbelievable. be for one club, it might be the best five years that of talent outside of probably St. George when they had their run mm. and maybe yeah. Souths when they had their run. Um, yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Um, now, in early 1991, the legal action initiated by players against the league suggesting that the draft was a restraint of trade is actually defeated in the courts when Justice Hill sides with the league. So the league's thinking, we're set. Mm-hmm. The draft is now okay. The courts have said so. That's a bit of a change to the uh, the rhetoric or the story that a lot of people know because that's not what it, you know that's not ended up happening. Yeah, yeah. Down the track it changes, but uh, it is interesting to think that they thought they they cleared all the hurdles at this point. Yes. Um, just a few weeks later, on February nineteen, the third round of the draft took place with one majorly contentious signing. There were 62 players on the draft and 21 were signed, one of whom was 19-year-old Terry Hill, who had been released by South, and he signed a playing and employment deal with Wes. And while even though he was playing out there, he was drafted by East. Mm-hmm. Terry Hill had been training with Wes, and he even appealed to Roosters coach Jack Gibson to overlook him in the draft, but Gibson picked him anyway. Hill even attached an exorbitant travel fee to his salary demands, which was going to see the Roosters fork at nearly $600 every day he'll attend a training. Wow. He didn't do it because he won the money. He did it because he 
he wanted to play with Wes. Yeah, he was trying to make himself basically undraftable, yeah. Yeah. So Hill said he'd rather play in England or sit out his contract with East entirely than play for the club in Bondi. And he stated his reason was simply finances. I have a fiancé and I cannot afford a house in the eastern suburbs area. I was in the process of buying something in Campbelltown where I'm living now. Remember, he's 19. Yes, and there's two really important things there. First of all, back then to travel from Campbelltown to Bondi is an absolute nightmare. It's an, it, I, I can't even – unless you've lived in Sydney and you know what the traffic and the roads were like back then, you, you just don't know what I'm talking about. It was a nightmare. Um, the other thing is you hear him say that he would rather play in England. And now all of a sudden, this is a pressure that is also being applied to the Australian Rugby League in terms of they're seeing all these players that aren't getting drafted. They realise they've got a problem here. And now one of the players that have got drafted have said, look, I don't like this so much. I'll go and play overseas. And this is something new. And and so that was a really important quote. Yeah, exactly. And it showed that it wasn't about preference of clubs or money and stuff like that. It was actually his life. Mm. Yeah, you know, it was life decisions. Um, Terry Hill went and appealed the decision in the courts. However, it was overturned, and he reluctantly signed a three-year deal with the Roosters in early April 1991. He had no no other option. Yeah, yeah. Um. The overwhelming number of unsigned players in the draft and the complaints of costs by clubs seemingly forced the league into adding two new teams into the competition. In 1993, they planned to add in two more sides, with Auckland and North Queensland the favourites, while further expansion to Melbourne, Perth and Adelaide was also on the cards. Yeah, and it's interesting that Melbourne is being tossed up at this point so early on. Um, and it's, I mean, it feels at this time it feels very ambitious to be going to North Queensland. Uh, not so much Auckland. Auckland was probably always going to be pretty good in the long term anyway. But, yeah, it's interesting that they only wanted two teams in. Yeah. Now, there was another issue which comes up here. It's to do with English players. Because in the second last draft, which was held in May, the Bulldogs picked up English halfback Gareth Stevens. Do you want to know how much they were going to pay him on his contract? Gary, oh, I wouldn't have a clue how much. $1. Okay, now, when I think about that, now, had Gary... Because Gary Stevens wasn't on the... He wasn't contracted with an Australian club. Yes. It also meant he wasn't an actual member on the draft. Yes. So they're, they're basically... They like him as a player, and this is future-proofing if he decides to come to Australia and actually play. Yeah. It's a smart and, move. And they'll probably pay him with money outside of the salary cap, so they might get him a job somewhere and pay him you know, via that, or they might pay for his rent in a, in a hotel somewhere or you know, whatever it is. Who knows? Pay, pay exorbitant amounts of money to fly his dog over. Mate, it's all on the cards at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, in July 26, 1991, it is reported that the Canberra Raiders have exceeded their 1990 salary cap by at least $600,000. Remember, their cap was $1.3 million. And in 1990, what did they do? They beat uh, the Panthers. That, that's right. They managed the grand final and won. Mm, they beat Penrith in Penrith's first grand final appearance. Devastated the Penrith region. Now, it, as a Penrith fan, it would not be right of me to ask this question. Why don't we hear more about the fact that it was an illegal team that beat the 1990 Penrith Panthers, the last of the Chocolate Soldiers? It's a very good question. Mm. Now, the fallout of this um, was that Canberra, Canberra had their 1992 salary cap hit really hard and they the Raiders lost a lot of players so much so they they didn't make the finals in 1992 after playing in successive grand finals uh in you know 89 1991 they didn't even make the top five in 92 that's how hard they got hit by the cap they didn't even get close to the grand final in 93 it wasn't until 94 it took them two years to recover from it to make the grand final again and become premiers and then Never saw him in a grand final until 2019. Yeah. Was it 2019? Yeah. So it, they did get hit hard. And I think a lot of people think that the punishment was served because of how long it took them to actually get back to a grand final again. And so that was pretty much it. Then again, right, if you, and we've seen this with the Storm, would you take a grand final win and then a couple of really bad years to then know that you're going to be 100% fine again. And I would suggest that most clubs would say yes to that. And I think history has shown that, unfortunately, in the NRL. Yeah. Um, I, I'd much rather that the salary cap for a club gets impacted, like they had in the in the initial thing there, and like what they did with Parramatta and Manly in recent years when they went yeah. over the cap. Yeah, it's then, the only way to stop it. Yeah, other as opposed to dishing out massive fines, because as we saw with the Melbourne Storm when they got when they got found out for systemic um, cap breaches, they got this massive fine which completely destroyed the junior competition that they had, well, the junior clubs that they had, and they've never recovered them. Which meant we now don't have a pathway for Melbourne players to play rugby league in Melbourne and come through and play for the Storm because all of the Storm's feeder clubs are now up in Queensland, so they've got to jump between states. Yeah, and the other thing is, too, you can, as a club, you can say, look, let's break the salary cap, hope that we don't get caught, but if we do get caught, we just go back to spending what we should be, and we consider any fines a tax for success. Pretty much. Pretty much. That's very well put, to be honest. It is just a tax. <laughs> um, now, while the, the cap wrought by the Raiders was reported as being $600,000, John Quayle rebuked that, rebuked that figure and said it was more like $100,000. He's playing it yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he wants word to get out that clubs are exceeding it by that much. By that much, yeah. Um, in August, the Raiders received their punishment for exceeding the cap in 1990 and 1991 which is a reduced cap in 92. It also saw the Raiders players accepting 15% pay cuts while others are being allowed to seek transfers to rival clubs. 
Their cap is to be reduced to $1.3 million in 1992, which is 300000 less than the other 15 sides. Remembering that 1992 is, that's when the, the hard cap comes in. It's set at $1.5 million. Yeah. So they're the only club that's going to be on uh, $1.2 million. I know I said 1.3 before I got it wrong. It was 1.2. So they, they copped a $150,000 fine in their cap for 1990 and another 150000 for 1991. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, in September, the federal court agreed that the league draft actually was a restraint of trade on players and thus deemed it illegal, forcing the league to end the draft concept immediately. The following month, the high court then officially deemed the draft system illegal that just makes it law that you cannot use it. Yeah, now, it's out, and it's and it's been off the table since. Yeah, completely destroyed, mm-hmm. and it's it's been absolutely toxic since then. Yeah, you, I like. I, I'm trying to think. I, I've never heard a rugby league official, in terms of their head of the ARL or the NRL, say we're looking at a draft. The only time you'll ever hear them say the word draft is if somebody says, what about a draft? And, you know, is it cold inside? It. Oh, there must yeah. be a draft. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing there. Um, the only time you hear it now is when someone in the media talks about it. Yes, and if you go back and listen to our episode about Dennis Tuddy, uh, we talk about the draft in depth and why it just doesn't work in rugby league. And we'll talk about a little bit about that later on in this episode too. Yeah. Now, for Terry Hill, this meant he was granted an immediate release from his three-year contract at the Roosters, which allowed him to sign with the, with the Magpies. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, after two seasons at West, Hill then relocated to Manly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently he'd earned enough to get one of those places on the Northern Beaches. Exactly. Um, that that was just amusing, that bit. Yeah. Um, many players had their contracts ratified as they were signed in the period between the High Court decision and the Federal Court decision. This saw the following player transfers take place with the immediate effect. Um, six of the 21 players listed were from the Raiders as they were in a huge roster shooting campaign so as to comply with their reduced cap in 92. So Brisbane picked up Glenn Lazarus. Yeah, who was... And the number one prop in the game at the time. And, I mean, he was a winner everywhere. Yep. Uh, and he was obviously at the Raiders at the time. So they got they got him. The Raiders picked up Paul Osborne from, from St. George. Cronulla got David Trewella from East. East picked up Gary Freeman from Balmain and Nigel Gaffey from Canberra. Uh, Gold Coast got Brent Todd from Canberra, Paul Martin from Canberra, Steve Jackson from West, and Dale Shearer from Brisbane. Uh, Manly got Phil Daly from the Gold Coast. Norse got Greg Barwick from Penrith and Jeff Doyle from Newcastle. Uh, the Knights got Jamie Ainsco from West. Penrith picked up Mark Robinson from the Dogs, Darren South from St. George, Brett Boyd from Canberra, and Graham Lyons from South. South got Matt Goodwin from Parramatta and Peter Johnson also from Parramatta. And West picked up Terry Hill from East and Mark Bell from Canberra. So there's a lot of lot of pretty good players there. Paul Osborne, Osborne stands out. <clears throat> yeah, there was a lot of really good players in that lot there. Um, mm-hmm. Gary Freeman went on to have an absolutely stellar, stellar season with East. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had a bit of a falling out with um, risk of going off rails there with the uh, new Bowman coach, Alan Jones, as did quite a few players. <laughs> um, now, at the end of 1991... 
the biggest concern coming up was going to be over um, Balmain forward, test forwards, Paul Siren and Steve Roach, because they were both coming off contract at the same time. So the league was watching them closely, knowing that they were probably going to be getting sizable contracts. Um, but Balmain managed to re-sign both of them. Um, but it did mean that Balmain's buying power was in- immediately reduced, though. They, they didn't have much wriggle room. Yeah. So that's pretty much the birth of the salary cap and the draft and how it got to be where it is, I guess, uh, by the end of 1991. As we said, Cam- the fallout from it was Canberra in 92, struggled. Um, Brisbane and St. George became the two dominant teams for the next two years. And Manly actually were in the wilderness a bit in 89. Uh, they, they made it back to the finals in 1990 and slowly started creeping back up into the, uh, you know, being the top-tier t- team. We saw Penrith were the best team in 1991 and were on track to be pretty tough to beat in 92 until the tragic accidents that happened in, was it June or July 92 when young Ben Alexander died in a car accident? Yeah. Um, that just destroyed the Penrith season, and they did take a long time to recover from that, understandably. Mm-hmm. They had a few players leave because of it as well. Um, most notably was Mark Geyer. Greg He's, Alexander left as well. Yeah. So <laughs> Mark Geyer, just, he was getting frustrated and very close to Ben as well. He just needed a new a change of scenery, and he went and moved to Balmain, which was just a horrible decision for both him and the club. It didn't work out at all there. And when 95 rolled around, he went and played for the Western Reds. And, I mean, we you heard a bit about his time at the Western Reds in our, um, our 95, 96, 97 episodes. Um, it wasn't very very nice for him there either. And after his time at the Reds ended, he went back to Penrith. And I think things were a lot better for him there. It just seemed he was like he was back home and everything was fine again. Yeah, and I think as a person, he, I'm pretty sure he's talked about this too, um, he wasn't playing his best football. He wasn't the player he used to be. He was still pretty damn good, but he wasn't the player he used to be. He'd been through a lot off the field. Um, on the field, he'd had some issues as well if, in terms of uh, suspensions and things like that. And coming back to Penrith, I think he was in a much better place in his sec- sec- uh, second stint with the club. And incredibly, and even if you'd said it at that point, if you said that Mark Guy is going to go on to have this incredibly long media career, most people would have said, what do you mean? Mark Guy, that Mark Guy. And he really has. He's had an incredible media career. Yeah, he has. There's no doubt about that. Um, so, yeah, pretty interesting time there. A lot of players moving around. Um, now, all of the players who were essentially free agents because of the draft, remained as free agents, but they could be bought by other clubs. They didn't have to go through the draft process anymore. Yeah. Um, but pretty much the majority of the household name players got picked up. Uh, if they did get picked up being by New South Wales Rugby League clubs, they got picked up by uh, teams in the English League because the English competition didn't have a salary cap and they had tons of money, so they'd throw it at anyone. Yeah, and like at this time... A club like Wigan is, they're the number one club in the world. And the amount of money that they can spend, the Australian clubs couldn't even think about. Nah, they couldn't match it. Not even close. No. 
Now, the thing I found amusing, and I, was, I mentioned this to you beforehand, uh, before we started recording, was mm. how there's some parallels between what went on then and what's going on now. Yeah, with the return of the three grades on game yep. day and stuff like that. Yep, and, um, you know, the need to bring in new clubs. Yeah. Because we've I... now got the, the, the Brisbane Jets, you know, and you know, and whatever other Brisbane options there are out there. I think it's Redcliffe and... Uh, the Brisbane Firehawks, or whatever they are. Firebirds. Yeah, the, the, it's interesting because I think the the pressures are a little bit different. I think back then, I know well. I know back then the ARL, and keeping in mind this leads this all of this leads right into the Super League War. So oh, yeah. like this episode, you could almost go straight to our 1994 season review. Um, all of this salary cap stuff. And the draft being like just when you think it's about to settle down, and it's like okay, no draft, we're getting the salary cap settled down and stuff. Everything's about to go out the window, and when it, like completely, the salary caps, contracts, everything is about to just be destroyed. So that's the first thing to keep in in mind. The second thing is that at this point, the ARL is about to add four teams to the competition. Uh, we've obviously got the Western Reds, as they were called at the time, the North Queensland Cowboys, the Auckland Warriors, and who's the other one? Oh, South Queensland Crushers. South Queensland Crushers. That's why, because they didn't matter. And <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and the reason was, I mean, initially what they were going to do was try and get two Sydney teams to either merge or fold. I yeah. suppose was was their wishes. You know, two of them would have to fold, and yeah. they'd they'd have an eighteen team comp. That was the maximum they wanted to have. Yeah, and they like at this time they basically felt like these expansion clubs, along with the likes of a Brisbane and I, even somebody like a Canberra at this point, they were the future of the game. They wanted less Sydney clubs, and the idea was that these new clubs had come in, they're spending. The, the amounts that clubs would have to spend is going to keep rising, and eventually some clubs were going to die. And so that's why the competition went from 16 teams, jumps all the way up to, to 20 teams, because the ARL was ready for what they called at the time natural attrition to occur. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, um, it all goes out the window because of Super League. It certainly did. I think at this time too, Canberra had debts, the, the league club had debts of several million. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that happened too, I know earlier I was talking about how clubs were trying to improve their books so they can get their salary caps increased. Mm-hmm. One thing South Sydney did is they sold all of their home games for 1980, uh, 1990. They sold them all to the SCG Trust. And they sold them for, it might have been half a million dollars, for, or almost half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And that meant that it, that automatic cash injection made their salary cap, uh, made their finances look better, which allowed them to have an increased salary cap. Yeah. Then it went pear shaped for them because they went from being minor premies in 1989, which would have helped them sell those home games for a very good price, to being wooden spoon in 1990 and only winning two of 22 games. Yeah. And it just further added to their woes. They were then leaning very heavily, even at that stage, on South Juniors, who were helping to prop them up. Um, other things that happened after 1991 all this was we had cigarette advertising was, was going to be outlawed by the Australian federal government. 
and I think there was also poker machine taxes coming in. Well, they were, they were, it was probably the beginning of talking about it at poker machine taxes. Yeah. But the idea was that when the the ban on uh, tobacco advertising come in, and it's funny at the time the talk was, oh wow, this is going to really, it's going to be terrible for the game's bottom dollar, and you know the, it's going to be in the red for a long time, and it's similar talk that we've seen when the poker machine tax come in eventually, oh the game's really going to find it hard to keep going, and blah blah blah, and the game always finds the money somehow. Um, that one interesting thing is with the salary cap being linked to uh, how much income a team was making, it did mean that clubs were looking for almost get-rich-quick schemes like South's come up with, and that kind of wasn't sustainable. And you've got to keep in mind at this time, clubs aren't really being sustained by television deals. It's a very different time for the game. That's right. The TV deal at the time, too, was with Channel 10, and it was a dire situation because um, it was only just in the start of the contract with Channel 10, which I think might have been for three years or something like that. And already in the first year, Channel 10 had fallen behind on their payments by a few hundred thousand dollars. And by the end of the next year, they were over a million dollars in arrears. Mm. And so this led to the league saying, that's it. The deal's been nullified. We're not going to go through with it. And then they signed a very poor deal with Channel 9. And that's that gets linked in also to the whole Super League war because Nine's then got the ownership of the game on an absolute bargain price. Yeah. Um, and the game's obviously trying to find a way to make more money out of the TV rights deal. You know, and that's where Foxtel comes in and they're looking at, you know, we, we can offer you this much money. We can give all your players this much money in. And then the ARL says, we're signing a deal with Optus. And yeah. Foxtel says, hmm, what if we made our own competition? Yeah. And it just all kicks off from there. So it's amazing how a lot of that all rolls into one. Yeah, it really is. And it's out of this moment of, you know, financial uncertainty for certain clubs, uh, a big imbalance in spending between clubs, uh, a lot of clubs that were very poorly run financially, you know, teams that were doing well off the field and doing well on the field, but then teams that were doing well on the field and absolutely terribly off the field. There was so and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And it, there was so much uncertainty about what was going to be the model for the game. And then and, and there's this big dark cloud that the game doesn't even know about at this point. There's been little murmurs here and there, but Super League's coming and it's going to shake everything up. And I guess when you look back at it with the context that we've got now from this episode, I don't want to say maybe we needed Super League, but I think we definitely needed some sort of giant shake-up that reset everything and turned the game into you know, from the chook raffle days that we have a, a laugh about to, all right, we've all got to tighten down, we've all got to be a business, and we're a television-run sport now. And Super League, the Super League War definitely did that. It did it in the wrong way, but the game obviously needed something to really reset everything because the clubs were so reluctant to do it themselves and to go along with 
what the league wanted. And it felt like the league's um, where the league wanted to be with its ideas of the salary cap and the draft and stuff. They weren't bad, but they weren't as fully formed as and as concrete as they should have been. No, it, it came across that they were trying to, what yeah, you know, what they wanted was what the NFL had. Yeah, but the only example that they could that was workable with them that they knew functioned in Australia was what the VFL had. Yes, and they were trying to get a compromise between the two, and they're also trying to push it through faster. So the VFL were having trouble with it, even though they had five years to go from the soft cap to the hard cap. They were still having a few troubles with it. And a lot of that came through private ownership. And I know we mentioned it before. Um, Jeffrey Edelson came along and he bought um, the Sydney Swans. Mm-hmm. And that meant that he was able to go and, you know, he's able to, his purchase gave the Swans a ton of money so they could go and start buying happy players everywhere. Because they also had, you know, incentives because they were interstate to, you know, they get summer cap dispensations and stuff like that, I assume. Because um, that still goes on. And yeah, crazily enough. It, the other thing is too that the VFL that turned into the AFL, they kind of had a, they were very much of the model that English rugby, rugby league clubs were, where you buy your season ticket ahead of time, and so yeah. their their revenues were very much more stable, and they kind of knew what they were going to be ahead of time as well. They could project them to a certain extent. Whereas it, rugby league clubs, they really couldn't do that. because, And the reason was, and this is so strange, rugby league clubs didn't like to have members at this time because members vote in board elections. Exactly right. And boards don't like getting voted out. So nope. where, and, and it's funny because now you see that they push memberships, but you'll find that you can't be a voting member unless you've been a member for a certain number of years. Correct. Um, and so these, so rugby league clubs actually de-incentivized becoming a member yep. and, and getting season tickets and all these sorts of things. And it's funny how it all plays into, all of these things play into each other. Yeah. This thing is all that. We don't want to get voted out by a bunch of disgruntled fans because as every person knows, fan and club alike, all it takes is a losing streak for a month or two, and everyone's out for fucking blood. Yep. We want this person sacked. We want the coach sacked. Or this player sacked. The board's got to go. Yada yada yada. They don't want any of that. We want to keep our cushy job. And so that's why I had that in place. You also saw things like where they'd say, "Oh, you can buy a membership in the football club." Mm-hmm. It means that you've got no say on what goes on with the board. All you've done is bought stuff to do with what goes on on the field, so to speak. And that's it. Yeah. You don't get and, any say whatsoever in the running of the club. Yeah. And it's funny because what did it take? Like after this point in there that we're talking about in this episode, must've taken a good 15 years before the clubs were kind of dragged kicking and screaming by the NRL to start selling memberships uh, because they, they still didn't want to be voted out of their jobs. That's right. And it, and, it was a good way to replace the, um, loss of revenue from the poker machine taxes that did come in. Yeah, and a lot of clubs make a lot of money off of it now. Yep. And it's funny to think that clubs didn't want that because board members were saving their jobs. Exactly. Oh, it's fascinating. Absolutely mm. fascinating. Um, so, yeah, that wraps up that little bit of uh, little bit of history. Now, let's touch on the draft. 
again yes. because we haven't talked about this for 271 episodes, which is crazy to think about. <laughs> you and me both hate the idea of a draft. We both think that they're unworkable in rugby league. We both think that they go against not only the spirit of the game, but the the mental health and the support systems of young players. Um, and we we covered a lot of this in the Dennis Tuddy episode in a lot of depth. Yeah, we should touch on it now again. All right. Well, I would say that the only way it could ever possibly work is if the players themselves, not the clubs, put themselves on the draft list. Because then they're saying, you know what? I fully understand that I could be picked up by a club that's miles away. But that's why they're there. So they're doing it at their own behest. They can't be forced to go there because the club doesn't want to have them anymore. That's the only way it could possibly work. I think the only way a draft could work in in the NRL is if it was a draft of players that were outside of the NRL and that placed themselves in that draft. And so you would see, and I'll use Sonny Bill Williams as an example, just because he's a player that was outside of the NRL and coming to the competition last year. Um or, you, you know, you could have a, a bunch of Super League players in the draft or whatever, but they would have to be outside the NRL. And because the way that rugby league works in Australia and even in New Zealand, you want a player to come through the lower grades and then be able to make their local NRL team. And you don't want to take them just as they're about to enter professional rugby league at the highest level, which is a lot of the times late teens or early 20s take them away from their support system completely and put them in an environment that they haven't chosen themselves. Um, We've seen what has happened to some players when they have moved to different clubs and just made the wrong decision and it's really affected them. And then you find that they end up moving back to their old club a lot of the time and they're much happier and they get their lives in order when they do that. Um, I I am a big NBA fan and there is a lot more money involved in the NBA and I think that the draft system is disgusting. I think that it it takes a lot of things in the game and it, it turns it turns young men into and I'll say men because this is the NRL we're just talking about, turns them into commodities. It turns them into rated stats. And I, I, I think it dehumanizes them to a certain extent. And I know they get financially compensated, but I, I just think that it's not a, a good system. It, it's not something that is nice for a player. No, of course not. If, you, if you're not treated like a human, I mean, Terry Hill is a classic example. Mm. He literally could not afford to live in, you know, live in the place where he's been contracted to. Yeah. He's already got himself a job, which was an important thing back then because we didn't have full-time professionalism in place. So he got himself a job and a contract in an area where he could afford to buy a house and he's got to throw all that away because some other club wanted him. So he was treated just like a commodity. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we can't we can't be doing that to people. No. The you can't just thing treat it... them like cattle. You know, it's, it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. We, we do it enough already. You know, as soon as a player retires... Forget about it, move on. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to do that at, at 
at a, a formative point in their lives. Forget about football, but you know. And then you also add the the fact in of like if you're the number one draft pick and a team got you because you're not the best player, but you're a prop and they need a prop. And unless you're a superstar, you are going to be called a bust. And we don't want that sort of label added to players. The other thing is too, rugby league is a development game. And a lot of our best stories are when a, a young player or a bunch of young players come through at one club and they go on to win premierships together and they become a local star for that club. And, you know, sometimes they move on, that's fine. But to get rid of that out of our game, I think would be losing something. And I think it would de-incentivize NRL clubs from spending money on developing players. Because why should a club like Penrith spend a million bucks on junior development when all of the good young players in that system are all just getting scattered around the rest of the NRL. Exactly right. No, I fully agree with you. Um, I suppose that wraps that one up, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's a really interesting history of the salary cap, and um, it's interesting that this episode leads into the 1994 episode. And, yeah, it was a really interesting time in the game's history, wasn't it? Certainly was. Certainly was. And this is the time that I started paying attention to rugby league. Mm-hmm. Not only a kid, but, you know, started paying attention to it. There's a lot of stuff going on. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, got a few other ideas to of episodes like this that we can do as well, mm-hmm. all from around the same time and how they all link into the Super League War. So um, I'll do a bit more work on those as well because I want to do one on the TV rights stuff that went on. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating in its own right. It's interesting that there's so many layers in the game at this point. And then we've also got the... I don't know if we're going to do a 1998 episode or just a general uh, post-Super League episode. Uh, We'll do a 98 one. I think we could do a a 98, 99. Listen to us just doing a production meeting now. Yeah, (laughs) at the end of the Yeah, we we can do those as well, chuck them in there and see how the game changed in the first few years of the NRL to resemble what we currently got now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fascinating. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. A, a real moment of instability in the game. And it really makes you think about the last 10 years in the NRL and the, all the things that have happened, but it has been incredibly stable. Yeah. More stable than any other time in, in its, in its past. Yeah, definitely. That, that's worth noting. Um, all right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Make sure you check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Fergo Freak Pod. Uh, make sure you check out our sponsor, Manscaped. Head over there. You can get anything you want there. Use our code NRL when you're in the uh, checkout. You'll get 20% off for free shipping. Um, so support them because they support us. Easy as that. Um, we're on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn. Check us all out there. And we've got a website as well, Freaky. Yeah, go to furgoandthefreak.com. You can get in contact with us by clicking on the contact button there. And, yeah, send us an email, send us feedback. We'd really like to hear what you think about this episode. And you can also see all the other history episodes that we've got. There's a button across the top of the page, and you just click on all the history episodes. You can see all the guests. We've got a guest button on there as well. So you can see all the guests we've had. And, yeah, check it out. Awesome. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Catch us all next time.